couldn't do my job, knowing that I need to worry not only about the threat in front of me, but now I have to look over my shoulder behind me. Those elected officials who downplay what happens. If there was another January 6th, would they have my back? Would they try to help me close the building? Or would they try to restrain me to prevent me from securing the Capitol? I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Sergeant Aquilino Ganell, an Army vet who defended the Capitol during the January 6th insurrection. The injuries he sustained that day ended his career in law enforcement, and his new book, American Shield, tells the story of the attack. Aquilino, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for hosting me, Ken. Good to see you. Good to see you too. What struck me most in your book about your account of that day when the Capitol was overrun was how quickly you entered the fight. It felt like one moment you're at your desk and the next you're strapping on gear and rushing towards the mob. Can you share with us what it felt like in that moment when you realized that you were headed into battle? It was uh, very, a lot of anxiety, a lot of things uh, was going through my mind. We didn't know exactly what was happening outside. Uh, Just yesterday, I was listening to some of the uh, radio communication that was happening around that day. And I could, it put me back exactly at the, that moment where I, I, I felt and you could feel in the communication, the crescendo, uh, urgency of, uh, of, of, of the moment when officer scream, send everything you got, send all the officer available, uh, thing uh, among those lines. We getting attacked. So those are things that remind me of that moment. And that's exactly what I, I urge my fellow uh, police officer and, and my team to hurry up and redeploy ourselves to a position to help my colleagues that they were being attacked on the West Front. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't know the stand of the, of, of the plan uh, to attack the Capitol uh, on multiple fronts. And we thought that the, the fighting was going to be concentrated just on the West Front, but we, I guess we were wrong, given the thousands and thousands of people who decided to take part in into the insurrection and in the fight. You're a combat vet, but this was a different kind of fight. You described it as medieval. In fact, President Biden picked up on that phrase himself. Can you describe the the nature of that kind of hand-to-hand combat in a tight area? Thanks for that question. Because, and the reason why I say it was worse than Iraq, even though in Iraq I, I survived explosions and, and, and shooting as well, it's not because I'm alive in that in Iraq and not here. The reason I'm saying it's worse or was worse is because there were things that were happening simultaneously back to back to back to back. So uh, I, I survived one, one, what I perceived at that time in, in, in on January 6th, a life-threatening situation to get into another one a couple of minutes later. Then, like, for example, we lost the police line and everybody else is encroaching on our space. We lose the police line. We are being overwhelmed, overrun. We are tired. We are exhausted. And not only are we feeling like we are losing 
I'll fight. Even though we have guns, we can't, we don't want to antagonize the crowd because there are thousands of, of them and none of them have gone through security. Then people are assaulting you with anything they, they, they get their hands on it, pepper spray, bear spray, breaking down some metal barriers and using those bear uh, uh, rods to hit you or throw it and lance at you or use it as a spear, using the American flag still attached to a, 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 a flagpole and using those as bayonets and, and, and injuring you with those things. And not only were we getting trampled, but we also getting crushed in the tunnel. I survived uh, getting dragged like they did to Michael Fennell. You know, then I, I getting crushed right next to Hodges between in between the mob and the police officer behind me. So I'm literally in, in the middle of it. And there's there are pictures of me just raising my hand, you know, trying to help somebody. But at the same time, I'm I guess I'm calling for help for myself as well. And, and those are only the first few two hours in moments of, of, of those four and a half plus that I that I spend there and that on the West Front. Uh, so it's hard to not to feel that that way. And when I say it, it was a struggle to uh, move two feet ahead of us, it was, it was because it was. You had literally had to uh, spend almost 20, 25 minutes just to move up a couple of inches forward. And you're fighting with these people, and, and they are relentless. They're not listening to any commands that you're giving them. They're not the chemicals that we were deploying to repel them. That also wasn't deterring them from coming in uh, to the point of uh, even pushing and, and, and joining a hee-haw ma uh, inside the tunnel, regardless uh, who was in front of them, they just want to go through. Actually, you know, as a vet, when we pan out and see just how violent the mob as a whole was, it is shocking to me that the Capitol Police didn't draw their firearms. And I am amazed at the the discipline it took to not do that. What was going through your head? And if you can speak for your colleagues through the heads of members of the Capitol Police in that moment, in deciding to exercise that kind of restraint, confronting a mob that wanted you all dead? Um, well, I can only speak about myself and my my experience. I know that I came very close to uh, transition to it, especially when, now that I know his name and he has been convicted, uh, Kyle Fitzsimmons. He's the guy who was pulling me into the crowd, and it, it didn't matter to him that, there were officers telling him to to stop doing whatever he was doing. He joined the fray, um, not once, but multiple times. And he waited until, until I was uh, busy trying to help another officer who fell in front of me. And I, was try- I came to his rescue. I pulled that officer from the, by the back of his collar. And when I did that, then uh, Fick Simmons was able to grab my shield and my shoulder strap and kept holding on to it to the point that other riders fell on top of him and he still wouldn't let go. And he injured my shoulder. At that time, I was like, well, let me try give this guy a hit or two, uh, at least in his hand or arm, 
And if that doesn't work, then I'm going to transition to to lethal force. Right immediately when I thought about that, then uh, another officer from the Metropolitan Police came uh, from my right and began to beat him up uh, to the point that he released me. Uh, and and I was lucky. I was lucky because I could have been dragged just like they did to Michael Fanon. I didn't know him at that time, but he literally took my spot before all that stuff uh, happened. But I already seen what happened to him. Uh, he got dragged back in, you know, unconscious, uh, back into the crowd. I mean, into the police line. We, in my opinion, collectively, but yet individually, chose not to use lethal force. Nobody told us not to. We just knew that if we did that, if we did not show uh, restraint, that we didn't know what would be the outcome. And, and in a way, I think they were waiting for us to use lethal force and we were waiting for them to use lethal force. And that kind of like kept everybody in check in terms of using uh, firearms. But it wasn't easy. I, I know we were justifiable. Uh, if we were we were to do that, you know, we just didn't know who was armed, uh, but uh, and we knew who that they had armed, but we didn't know who. And you, as a police officer, you are accountable for each round that goes out of your barrel. And if you miss or you hit grandma, whatever, even though you are justifiable, because you know there's no way that if there's a fire in a building and you you, you say to yourself, well. I feel the heat, but I don't think it's a fire. And then you get to the fire, you get burned. That's a, you know, that's on you for being dumb enough to get to the fire, because you could see the fire. There's a fire, and a lot of people saw the fighting inside the tunnel, and yet they decide to join the fire, the fight, and then say, you know what? Oh, I didn't know that there was a fight going on. You didn't see the the punches. You didn't see the pepper spray. You didn't see the brawl. You didn't see the crowd roaring. You didn't see, uh, you know, or the pepper spray or the weapons or the shield be taken away from police officer. So when they go in front of the court and say, I didn't know I got caught up in the moment or, uh, you know, those are dumb excuses that they only themselves are saying, telling themselves, trying to make the judge believe them. But again, if there's a fight and you think there's a fight and you hear that there's a fight, most likely it's a fight. And a lot of people decide to join the fray, uh, and, and you know because it was their intent. Their intent was to breach the Capitol, and it didn't matter whether we were police officers or not. In some ways, your toughest battle has been dealing with the the aftermath. What led you to ultimately make the decision to testify about what you experienced that day? Um, the fight for truth. Uh, I know right after I te- uh, my testimony to the January 6th committee, there was a lot of media personality, uh, especially from the far right wing, far right wing. They were talking about things about me or saying things that about me that they never came and talked to me about it or never uh, had a conversation with me about it or never b- even bothered to ask me about it. But that yet here there are drawing conclusion, assuming things or making misleading people or giving false information about me. Uh, you know, writing the book, I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to tell it and tell it uh, under my own accord because I had done and sacrificed so much for this country in order for them 
uh, including to, for those people who now criticize me for speaking up, uh, like some of these elected officials who I risked my life for on January 6th. They couldn't have not l- exit the building or get to the refuge uh, area or safe area inside the Capitol or evacuate the Capitol without the actions that we took, including myself, on January 6th. And those are the same people now that they get their mouth full of uh, BS, saying that they support the police, they back the, the, the police, uh, they are pro-rule of law and uh, law and order. And when they had a chance to prove that, they decided to side with the insurrectionists. They decided to go in front of the Department of Justice to request and demand that the same people who attacked myself and my colleagues on January 6th, that they should be let out. They should be released because these are patriots. These are hostages and these are peaceful people or innocent people that happen to be in the Capitol and they didn't do anything. Okay, yes, they were the Capitol and they didn't do anything, but not because of lack of trying. They couldn't get to us. They couldn't get to them, to the elected official, and that's why they didn't do anything. If there are prisoners, political prisoners, and hostages, then what does that make us, the police officer? The kidnappers, the sequesters, the sicarios, you know, the bad guys of the story because we stopped the mob and you, their supporters? You know, it's, it's very, it, it creates a moral injury on the officers and uh, anyone who responded and did their job, people who kept their oath and defended the Capitol, including those elected officials who deny everything that happened. You write about some of those elected officials, uh, and I'm going to read you the quote from the book, but it it gives me the impression that you're pretty clear that that they know. They know the truth, and they're just cowards about admitting it, and they can't even look you in the eye. And you, you say that when you bump into Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, and Lindsey Graham in the hallways and elevators at the Capitol, they pretend not to see you. Not acknowledging that I put my life on the line to protect theirs. What is an interaction like that like? With someone whose life you may well have saved, who's, who you've certainly risked your life for not even deigning to look you in the eye. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't looking for the interaction. I just happened to be walking to point A to point B. And, you know, if they did talk to me, I would have be courteous about it. I, I wasn't looking for trouble. I was just happened to be going and doing my job. Even though I was in civilian clothes, they knew who I was. I had a radio, I had my ID out. Um, they see me on TV, but they rather look past me or avoided me or pretend that they were on the phone uh, at that time, and, you know, I do say out of in American Shield, my my memoir, that out of those, all those elected officials from the Republican side, only Liz Cheney and Anna Kinsinger bothered to actually sit down and talk to me or listen to me to the to this day. Nobody else from that side, they knew where I worked. They knew how to reach me if they really wanted to. All they had to do was call Capitol Police and say, hey, can I get Sean Gunnell's uh, information? I would like to speak to him or I would like to have a meeting with him. But they didn't bother. On January 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 12th, and all the way to the 20th, they, they were scared of 
what happened. They knew who was responsible, and yet they still chose to, three weeks later after January 6th, decide to go to Mar-a-Lago because somebody was depressed and not eating well. Well, what about the other officers, the officers that protected you? You only send Chick-fil-A sandwiches as if that was the support, the kind of support that we needed at that time. No, we needed legislation. We needed support. Uh, I'm glad that Officer Sydney family, when they were at the Capitol last year for the gold medal ceremony, they left those Republicans with their hands out, waiting to be uh, shaped. You know, I would have done the same thing because they only were there for the photo op. They, they never supported us. But yet on TV, um, and they tell people that they support police officers. They are the party of law and order, the party of rule of law, the physical and personal responsibility. Was there accountability in allowing Donald Trump attacking and targeting them to be hunted down room by room when he he sent them off to the Capitol? He said, hang my pants. Or they, they were saying, hang my pants. Now, hang with my pants. You know, there's a difference. And even him, Mike Pence, didn't have the courage to come back and say anything publicly about Donald Trump. When he says that one day in January, we need to move on. Well, that one day in January, you were the target. You were being hunted down room by room and chased down by the mob. And the only reason why you left, you got to the loading dock to use that safe area because officers like myself, and the one that escorted him down there put their lives on the line. And then he goes and says the president was not criminal. He was reckless on January 6th. Well, how reckless did, did he want the mob to be for the president with his life and everybody else? Where you had the next, the, the vice president of the United States, the Speaker of the House, the nuclear codes, and the Speaker, uh, um, the Senate, uh, Senate pretend. These are the next three people in the line of succession to the presidency. If you, and if it wasn't because what we did, the officers, all those people were the target of the mob. And, you know, the president himself, he sent a mob to attack his own branch of the government, his own vice president, along with his daughter and his wife, and the nuclear codes. If, if that's not a security national security incident, then I don't know what is. And they continue to uh, support him no matter what. I mean, you know, the, the classified documents, they call it a, uh, a storage issue, not a not a breach of security like they had done to uh, Tessera. Tessera, uh, a couple of months ago, if you remember, the minute they find out that he was sharing information online, he was arrested within a week. It's been almost two years, well, three years since this guy left the White House. And those documents have been in somewhere in Florida, unattended, unsecure. I mean, come on. How, how, how responsible are Republicans pushing for accountability on that end? Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family that you want to be able to spend as much time as possible with, is so important. We can all benefit from heart-healthy energy, one of the best ways to get some by supporting your blood pressure and circulation. Superbeet's heart chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure. They're plant-based, 
and stimulant-free so you get a green boost without the jitters. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants in Super Beets are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Super Beets Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplement out there. Super Beats is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Super Beats Heart Chews support healthy circulation, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Double your potential with Super Beats Heart Chews. Get a free 30-day supply of Super Beats Heart Chews and a free full-size bag of turmeric chews valued at 25 bucks by going to BoatsBeats.com. Get this exclusive offer only at BoatsBeats.com. Start the new year knowing you found the right life insurance to protect your family with Policy Genius. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind for the rest of 2024 and beyond. So if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies and their team of licensed experts is on hand to help talk you through it. As a dad, having life insurance gives me the peace of mind to know that my kids will be taken care of if something happens. It's not something we want to think about, but if we're responsible for other people, we have to. Thankfully, Policy Genius makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed, award winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com slash boats or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com slash boats. You make a really important point in your book about accountability, and I, and I want to read that passage as well. You say that two years after the January 6th insurrection, almost 1,000 defendants have been charged with assaulting, resisting, or impeding officers, including 96 accused of using deadly weapons. But they were mostly ordinary citizens who blindly followed the misinformation spewed by the most powerful man in the world. Despite the committee's recommendations to prosecute Trump, as of this writing, not one person responsible for planning, instigating, or paying for January 6th has been arrested yet. I want to talk about the accountability aspect of this and the fact that the people who instigated the attack on the Capitol— they did it from a safe distance. You have Josh Hawley fist bumping the insurrectionists and then running like hell the moment he's in danger. You have people like, you know, Ted Cruz and of course the former president himself as far away from the barricades as they can be, but pushing others into the line of fire 
into people like you and Mike Fanone and Brian Sicknick. I understand your anger at those who were trying to beat you to death that day, but how do you feel about those far away from the barricades in the, you know, the safety of, of their conference rooms or limousines who set this up? I mean, these are the people that I think uh, many Republican elected officials, they know who they are, including some of them themselves were took part in, into the things that happened uh, on January 6th. And it bothers me that they know that they are implicit. It bothers me that they don't want to hold these people accountable. And, and, and you know, especially when I risk my life for them. And that's what kind of like where the moral injury comes in. Because I know had I not done those things that I did on January 6th, their lives would have been changed. Many other this themselves or their colleagues would have perished on that day. And I'm not saying that I alone saved democracy or saved the capital. I'm saying is be grateful that we did what we did because, you know, I cannot have, if I were to be working still at the capital, couldn't do my job in a good way, knowing that I need to worry not only about the threat in front of me, but now I have to look over my shoulder if they are behind me. Those elected officials who downplay what happens on January 6th. If there was another January 6th, would they have my back? Would they try to help me close the building or would they try to restrain me to prevent me from securing the Capitol? And, you know, on January 6th, they need, they were running for their lives. They got to the safe area with the help and the time that we gave in to do so and to turn around and establish in the back. That's hard to swallow. The same people who risked my life now says that nothing happened. And if it did, it wasn't as bad as it was, as I say it was. Well, when they say nothing happened, nothing happened to who? To me, who risked my life and had the, the, the injuries, uh, the pictures, the videos of my ass getting beat up by my, more than 50 people, or them running for their lives, fist pumping, you know? And they got to go home and kiss their family and sleep well in their bed. I didn't. I was so comfortable. I was injured. And then the next day, I was back here two, with two hours rest, trying to protect them, trying to protect the country, trying to protect our democracy, trying to protect my family. You know, I don't know. Uh, my wife, she just, she's just got her citizenship on, on two days ago. Congrats. And I don't know if that would have been possible if it was not because of the efforts that I did on January 6th. Will we had a different outcome? Will we had a democracy still? Will we had our government still running in place at that time? You know, I think all the actions that I did on January 6th, I hope it's not in vain. I hope that people learn from those mistakes. I hope that people do hold those responsible, those people who orchestrated the mob and they set it aflame the, 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 the events of January 6th. I hope they do uh, come to be held accountable because it wasn't easy for me to come forward uh, and, and speak about these things. I, I, I think us as a police officers, we have a culture of keeping things within ourselves, within our departments. And I saw the magnitude and the gravity and the severe, severity of that particular moment in our times where 
I, it was impossible for me to remain silent. It was impossible for me because I, I risked so much on my life defending this country, defending the values of this country uh, and principles as well. And then here you have a the this, uh, disintegration of a political party that claimed to have and hold the police officers, law, law enforcement officers, the military, and, and, and any institution that make our country great. Uh, they are disintegrating and, and eroding it for one person. You are that, it is your fidelity to this person so bad that you're willing to throw away this country? I spent 23 years of my life defending this country and its institution, a home and abroad. And yet you have somebody who's not even willing to sacrifice their job, their political career, uh, besides Liz Cheney and Adam Kinsinger. Nobody else is willing to defend the country of, of those elected officials right now in Congress. I don't see it. You talked about moral injury, and I think that is such an important concept for our viewers to to understand. We've talked about it before on the show, but it's it's distinct from PTSD And there's usually an element of, or often an element of betrayal involved. Can you talk about how insidious that kind of moral injury is and and what it feels like to have been essentially betrayed by the people you risked your lives for? I mean, and I want to leave you with this. I do speak about this in in a length in, in my book. When I joined the military, I knew the danger of risking my life to protect many people in this country. When I raised my hand again to become a police officer, I did that again willingly uh, as a police officer. And there are certain dangers that are inherent within the profession. And I was willing to take it, and I did. And that's what I thought I was doing on January 6th. When I risked my life, I could have just as easily walked away from that door, that entrance, like many of the right-wing conspiracy theorists say that, you know, many officers did. I didn't. I stayed on my post. I stayed for four hours and a half, badly or more, uh, the mob, both outside in the plaza, on the West Front, and inside the tunnel. And then we stay over, checking uh, and securing the building throughout the day. I got to the Capitol at 610 that day on January 6th. Yeah, I didn't go home until January 7th at 4 a.m. to be back at the Capitol at 8 o'clock and do another 16, 18 hours and did that for three days. You know, when I risked my life, I wasn't thinking about who am I protecting, whether they're Democrat, Republican, independent, gay, straight, religious, or non-religious. I was doing it because it was my sworn oath. It was my duty. I kept my oath. I did my job. I did what I was supposed to. I defended the capital. I defended our democracy. I defended my colleagues. I defended my wife's future, my kid's future, and my own. And even if that meant risking my life, I was willing to do that, you know? And now you have people that says nothing happened in the capital. Or let me release this video, this clip, which selectively picks you know, three seconds or three minutes of quietness out of what? How many hours of fighting? Are you talking about the beginning or the end when people are being rushed out and people look like they are, haven't done anything? 
But what about the fighting when the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson, releases those, those videos? I bet you he's not releasing the picture of him running away. I bet you he's not releasing his co- uh, the pictures or uh, videos of him and his colleague being escorted by Capitol Police with the mob close by. You know, that's so disingenuous. That's, that's so disrespectful and are desecrating the sacrifices the officers like uh, like we had, we did on on that day and desecrating the sacrifices that of those officers who die as a result of January 6th. Everything that we did in that day has been squandered by the right wing and the elected officials from, from the Republican side. And yet they, they go on TV and say, we support the police. How? How are you supporting the police if you're not even willing to do an investigation into what happened on January 6th? And many of the members, their own members, went to the White House, uh, according to reports, to plan about that day. But yet you had Jim Jordan defying subpoenas and issuing subpoena, demanding records when he himself is a material material witness of the event on January 6th. And there are others who were at the Capitol in that meeting with Mike Flynn, Rudy Giuliani, and a whole bunch of people that, you know, they plan and coordinated some of these things. But they are the party of rule of law, law and order. Hmm, okay, I believe it. Send me, send me another bridge, and I believe you. But um, I do speak about length about, about the moral injury. I risk my life for these individuals. I wish it would have been different. Um, kind of like 9-11. After 9-11, we all came together. We, we were resolute. We knew who uh, attacked us, and we went after. Uh, the difference is... On January 6th, they knew who was responsible, and they chose a side to side with the person who sent them out to attack them, attack a branch of his own government. And bin Laden was never found to be inside those planes, but we indicted him. We indicted him, and he paid a price for sending those people to blow up the, the planes inside the World Trade Center. I think we know who sent the mob to the Capitol. And I think we know who's responsible. You don't have to fly, fly the plane in order for you to, to be the captain and the orchestrator of that, those plans. And we all know that. They know that. And yet that person is the one that they, they are supporting to become a, a, a nominee, to become a candidate again, to do the job that he didn't want to do in the first place. I think, I don't know if we'll survive another January 6th. I don't know if we will survive another term because the minute that he gets back in power, he will say that the last four years that he was in power didn't count and therefore he need a mulligan and he's going to try to do away with the uh, term limits, kind of like what many authoritarian regimes overseas have done, like Xi Jinping put in in, in uh, Aerodon, all these people, they had do away with term limits just to remain in power. And I think, I hope people do realize that uh, many people sacrifice, done many sacrifices to, to make this country great. Uh, it's not easy. I don't know. I, I don't understand why so many veterans and police officers do support this guy when he calls the veterans like myself, like 
uh, any any veterans, uh, losers in soccer, and somebody who never don't ha- has not shown any respect for the bravery of being a soldier, the selflessness of being a soldier. He doesn't even want to see them injured or wounded, but yet that's the person that they want to to be their champion. The person who's running on nothing else but January 6th and 2020 election. But they tell me and my colleagues to move on when their candidate is running just on that alone. Uh, three weeks ago, he calls them hostages. Hostages? Who am I then? The, the captor? The sequester? The carrier? The bad guy? We did our job. We kept our oath. And nobody else was authorized to be in the Capitol but the elected officials, police, the media, and their staff. Nobody else in January 6th was authorized to be there. And it wasn't peaceful. Show the whole damn clip, all the videos, including the elected officials running for their lives. It wasn't peaceful. They got to go home. We, we didn't. We had to stay. We had to remain on post. There were violence. It was violence. And people need to understand that. And, and I think, I hope that you are able to read my book, see the sacrifices that I had done for this country, for this nation. It, it's not just about January 6th. It's a story about sacrifices and bravery. Um, and if you can, please also review it, share with your colleagues and friends. I think you will have, we'll have a better understanding of where, where I'm coming from and the things that I had done for this great country. Thank you. Well, thanks, Aquilino. The book is American Shield. Honored to speak with you. Thank you, not just for for telling the truth, but holding the line on that day. Um, good luck with the book. Thank you. And the, the book is also going to be published on the 7th, two days from now in Spanish. Um, so if you have a Spanish for a Latino's friend, please share, them, uh, share the book with them. It's called Escudo Americano. And, uh, Sargento Inmigrante que defendió la democracia. Thank you, and I uh, hope you guys have a great holidays. Thanks for listening uh, to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolofman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.